This programming is sponsored by the UH Health Family Care Center, offering primary care and behavioral health services on the University of Houston campus. Health insurance plans including Medicare and Medicaid accepted. New patient appointments and more at 832-UH-CARES. This is Party Politics, a podcast to prep you on what's happening in politics for your next dinner party this weekend. I'm Jay Iyer, a political science professor from Texas Southern University. And I'm Brandon Roddinghouse, a political science professor from the University of Houston. Every week, Jay and I get together and hang out and talk politics. And like most weeks, it's been uh, an eventful week with a bunch of little things happening, many of which revolve around kind of inter-party squabbles, right? We have Democrats fighting Democrats. We've got Republicans fighting Republicans. We've got the American League and National Leagues trying to fight to see who's going to go to the World Series. So it's a kind of a, a big go week Astros, for Go inter-party. Astros. That's <laughs> yes. right. That's right, Brandon. And let's start off on the Democratic yeah. side. So we've had sort of this call for a generational change in the Democratic Party. Congresswoman Linda Sanchez from California has called out Nancy Pelosi and really the, the broader leadership of the Democratic Party in the House and said, look, it's time for a change. You know, the leadership structure has basically been the same for about 14 years. Uh, We need new leadership. We need a younger leadership. Um, And this is sort of a broader question because you're seeing a similar thing happen in the California Senate seat that's held by Dianne Feinstein, who announced for re-election. She's 84 years old. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is 77 years old. Are we going to see more of this um, or is this much ado of nothing? I think that when parties go through these kinds of growing pains and when they've receive these kinds of brutal losses in elections. There's always a, uh, some self-reflection that oftentimes points at leadership who look like if they haven't essentially won electorally, then then they haven't really been able to deliver. I'm not sure. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of like built up um, information and uh, institutional knowledge in the, you know, Monroe leader Pelosi. But like, it's still a party that is really reeling from the Trump phenomenon without the ability to understand kind of what to do next. So I think that the growing pains are really in present. We haven't seen such a high profile type of call out uh, in the Democratic Party yet. But when the Democrats like they do in California control things, then you definitely see some inter-party strife. And so I think that we're probably going to see more of this split. But it's not uncommon when the party is looking for answers to these big questions that they haven't been able to be able to address. Well, Brandon, we've also had issues as we seemingly have had every week um, in the administration. And we haven't really talked a lot about this, but there's been this ongoing problem with an inability of the administration to get their hands around travel-related issues, sort of travel gate, squared, cubed, whatever you want to call it, (laughs) use of private planes, use of commercial jets, or not using commercial jets. What's going on here? Yeah, well, I was told there'd be no math here, so I don't know. I'm a little little worried about this. But yeah, there has been a kind of swamp-draining problem for Trump, and he had promised to essentially kind of reform government and make it work for people. But there have been these ongoing issues. So the Interior Secretary, Ryan Zink, has effectively been attending fundraisers, which might not be permissible. It's also been the case that Secretary Perry has chartered Gulfstream air jets to fly to specific events. And this comes on the heels of Secretary Munchen, who had posted an Instagram photo of uh, the summer's solar eclipse that that happened not too many months ago uh, aboard a government plane. Tom Price, of course, we know, Health and Human Services Secretary, was essentially fired by the president for 
issues related to charter flights and other kinds of air travel. I think that it's a perception problem for the president more than it is an actual problem. These kinds of things get found out all the time. The fact that we know it suggests that it's definitely fixable. But for the president who ran on draining the swamp, it doesn't look good. Yeah, and it seems so odd to me because it continues to happen over and over again. You would think after the first time it, it had been out there that the president would have laid out a sort of decree or John Kelly, the chief of staff, would have laid out some sort of decree saying, please fly commercial at all times unless there is a immediate national security related issue at stake. But they keep doing it. It, it sort of begs the question as to why. Well, here's the problem with no one minding the store. It's that no one's following the rules, right? And like you say, this really starts at the top. And so I think these problems can be fixed. I mean, the fact that there's a process in place suggests that they can be, but it's going to take some time and they're going to really have to watch this. And so I suspect that they'll get it right. But it definitely maintains that perception that this is an administration who is not well run and is also not draining the swamp. Well, speaking of sort of abiding by the rules or changing the rules, the president, I think, had come out with a deal with Chuck Schumer, the Senate Minority Leader, and Nancy Pelosi. And now looks like he's come out with some changes to his own deal that he had struck with them uh, that links sort of DACA, uh, the Deferred Action uh, for Childhood Arrivals program, to, to reboot it with broader immigration reform, but sort of Trump-style immigration reform. Yeah, the president put an exploding deadline on DACA so that if something doesn't happen, then essentially then the program goes away, affecting you know millions of people um, who have been brought to this country, like we've talked about in prior podcasts. So the fact, though, I think, is that this is a smart play for the president. This is a top campaign promise, and he needs to be able to make some changes to immigration to be able to play to his base. It's also the case now that he actually has leverage, right? The person who's the architect of the art of the deal has leverage over Congress, who probably wants to get something done on this. So if he's going to make a deal, now's the time to do it. And I think, like you say, he's able to break a deal with the Democrats that the Democrats crowed about by saying that they had essentially got the president to back down off of the wall and the connection between the two. He can here sort of gear up to a political fight and ingratiate himself to Republicans at least a little bit by saying they thought, the Democrats thought we had a deal. We actually don't have a deal. Yeah, I agree with you. I think this is one where, where President Trump may have actually outmaneuvered the Democrats on this, largely because they desperately want a deal on DACA. And so the question is, how much are they willing to give? The centerpiece of the president's immigration outline is not so much the wall, which I think he's been a lot more flexible on in terms of, you know, now the wall is really looking more like a fence in some places. Mm -hmm. He no longer wants to worry about, you know, cutting through national monuments and things like that. But the big issue is he wants to end what he calls chain migration. He wants to fundamentally change the way we do immigration reform and basically say, look, skills, employment based only, and he wants to dramatically reduce the number of family-based immigrants coming into the United States to basically limit it to only parents and children and spouses. And so you, you take away a lot of that, you reform it. The real question is whether Democrats can deal at all on this because politically it's very difficult for them. They cannot accept the wall. That's something that probably is a limit. The president also has had some words with the National Football League here, Jay. And despite the fact that our Texans have struggled with some injuries and some losses lately, the battle continues off the gridiron. And President Trump has threatened essentially to use federal tax law to penalize the NFL for players who kneel in protest during the national anthem. The White House backed off of this, saying that he was just trying to make a point. But the larger implications still stand. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Most people probably don't realize that the National Football League is in fact a not-for-profit entity. 
it doesn't pay federal taxes in the way uh, other entities do, even though it's a multi-billion dollar global venture. Um, and so the president reminded the NFL, and of course, a series of tweets, that, hey, this is potentially at risk here um, and ought to be looked at. And uh, he was patting himself on the back for the NFL owners uh, getting together to discuss uh, the idea of how they're going to approach the national anthem. Yeah, and I think most importantly, he changed the narrative about what the protest was. Exactly. And that's something that he is really effective at. Now, if they can harness that for political gain and legislative gain, then this White House can turn itself around. But as it is now, he's moving in different directions, and it hasn't really been focused enough to be successful. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because the protest from the player's perspective was about uh, police brutality, right, and race relations in the United States. He successfully turned it into sort of a criticism of the flag and of the military, which it's really not intent, at least certainly that was not the intent. The other element that most people forget is the NFL wasn't coming out and making this production about the national anthem up until 2009 when they signed a deal with the U.S. military. So the NFL is actually getting paid by the U.S. military to do all this. So it's complicated and it's very much consistent with what the president normally does. Well, let's take a quick break and we come back. Let's talk a little bit on the other side of this inter-party warfare, this ongoing battle between President Trump and his own party. So like we said, Jay, there has been a lot of inter-party strife in a couple of dimensions. One is that we had last week Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, reportedly calling the president a moron, to which the president decided to challenge Rex Tillerson to an IQ test. Then you had the president attacking a senator in his own party, the powerful chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, Senator Corker from Tennessee. He uh, had words back and forth. The president insulted Senator Corker's height, calling him little, and that's with D's, not T's, Jay, in case you're <laughs> following at home. He also suggested that Corker had begged the president for an endorsement in the Senate race, and the president declined. Therefore, Corker decided not to run for re-election. The Tennessee Republican said that the White House is being run like an adult daycare center and that the president will carelessly start World War III. What is happening here? Is this par for the course? And what, frankly, will be the implications to the president talking badly about people who are in his administration as well as fellow Republicans. Yeah, we are so far away from Ronald Reagan's 11th commandment, <laughs> thou shall not speak ill of another Republican. Right. That, uh, I mean, we saw this in the primary, right? I mean, the, the president has a knack for coming up with names for his opponents, and he is relentless in doing it. You know, remember Low Energy Jeb right. and Lion Ted and right. all that kind of stuff. Um, little Marco, we just essentially recycled some of those names, I think. But yeah, the president... Um, is essentially at war with sort of mainstream elements of the Republican Party. Before this current battle with, with Senator Corker, he had, you know, dust-ups with Jeff Flake uh, from Arizona, Senator McCain famously, all during the campaign and afterwards, and continues on today. Um, ben Sass from Nebraska. So it sort of goes all along the spectrum. Um, it's a real issue for him. I think he just knows one speed, and this is the way he operates. I think what he doesn't recognize sometimes is that by using this kind of coarseness and language, I think it sort of brings him down and doesn't really advance the cause. And I think it reinforces in their mind that he's not stable um, and not uh, not in a good position to be president. 
you know, it's funny because there's an old saying in these inter-party, inter-branch relations that says that trust is the coin of the realm. Presidents and Congress will always disagree. There will always be parts of some segment, some faction that won't like what the other is doing. But it is always based upon trust, trust in institutions and trust in the party system and leadership to sort of figure things out through normal channels. But we don't have normal channels here, right? We are through the looking glass. And it's hard to see what the president's grand strategy is here. I want to get your sense of this. Is it the case that you think that the president really just is physically wired? He is psychologically predisposed towards this kind of attack mentality? Um, or is it the case that there's some kind of broad strategy about how he plans to kind of use the leverage of his political success to be able to make some changes. I can see a case to be made that he wants to sort of in the Steve Bannon mold, right, revolutionize how Washington is run by bringing people in who are like Donald Trump. But first of all, that takes a long time. I don't think it's practical. And number two, I don't know that that's a strategy that the president wants. Would the president want to negotiate with 100 Donald Trumps? I think the answer is no, right? Yeah, so, I agree with you. to me, I don't see the strategy here. And maybe you can help <laughs> me and our listeners figure out what's going on. No, look, I think to judge the president, we have to look at how he's dealt with these types of issues in the past. You look at the primary, you look at even how his dealings are in the business world. I think this is this, as you say, is how he's wired. Um, he's not a, I think, a consensus style politician. He doesn't like to bring folks together. The interesting thing to me, though, is that he's still able to hold on to his primary base he feels like he speaks for the the actual voter in the Republican primary, and that Corker does not, um, and and that folks sort of who are considered traditional mainstream Republicans do not. It's an interesting position to take, but one that I think seems to be verifying out, or at least borne out in some of the polling we've seen. The president's still popular among Republican-based voters. His endorsement still means everything, Alabama notwithstanding. Yeah. And, and that's probably a, the best example. You asked about the question of, is he trying to get a mirror image of himself in the Senate? I don't think so, which is one of the reasons why I think he might ultimately have some problems if Roy Moore is elected out of Alabama. But to me, I think the end of the day is, is he is a, his modus operandi has always been to be as combative as possible. And he likes subordinates, and he views them as subordinates, that are supportive of him without publicly questioning him. Yeah, we had talked before the break about the president's relationship with the Democrats, especially with, uh, with, with Senator Schumer. The president is a transactional politician, if we could label him something, and not an institutional politician. That means that he's going to make deals where he sees them. And that means party may not matter, loyalty may not matter, uh, and just frankly, good taste sometimes may not matter. So that's, I think, a real issue for the White House. But if we look at past White Houses, we've seen this all the time. This is an opportunity for the opposition party to be able to drive a wedge within the Republican Party. So Kennedy versus Wilbur Mills on Medicaid. Uh, Medicare issues. You had President Eisenhower versus the isolationist Republicans in the 1950s. You have Jimmy Carter versus the Democrats who wanted to use government to be able to produce some goodies, right? Um, and uh, the president wouldn't essentially go for that. So you've always had inter-party strife that has always been taken advantage of by the other party. So this is an opportunity for the Democrats to be able to make some movement here and to be able to stop some legislation, but also to be able to try to sort of position themselves for the next election. I think the Carter analogy you brought is one that we should probably explore a little, because in many ways, I know it seems sort of odd because Jimmy Carter is sort of this very genteel man, 
but he is as similar to Donald Trump as I think any pre- previous president in the sense that he was an outsider. It was sort of an unusual set of circumstances in the post-Watergate era and the pardoning of Richard Nixon that allowed him to win. He came outside of the party structure, outside of the system, came in and won and was almost immediately at odds with the base of his own party and the bulk of, of, of the establishment of his party. Um, and it didn't end well for him. And so I think the lesson for President Trump is to look at what happened with President Carter because he's looking like he's repeating that, that, that model. Yeah, I think that one big difference is that Jimmy Carter would never call anyone a moron or names uh, or uh, talk about somebody's like specific facial features. That's not the way that President Carter handled his business, nor how most presidents do. Right. So this kind of inner party warfare is problematic. But if you can't get the trust of people, even the benefit of the doubt on some of these smaller issues, then you're not going to be able to move the ball. That means like calling out Senator Sass, saying McCain is not a war hero. Like talking badly about Senator Collins, these things are not going to get you the benefit of a close call. And it's exactly what you need when your margins are so small for the president in the Senate. Well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to tell you why this warfare is so important. So, Jay, what are the implications to this inter-party warfare for the president, for the country, for Congress, and for lawmaking? For me, I think the larger question is, are we at that sort of pivot point like we were in uh, in 1980, where you had an election that sort of changed the fundamental direction of the United States? I think we might be there again. You could see the breakdown of the Republican Party in many ways. To me, it's it's a real larger issue about the direction of the country. And I think this is just a great example of what's going to potentially could happen. The country has not been as polarized as this since just after the Civil War. Each party had different factions looking for different things, and what was needed was a president who could unify things. They didn't have that for several more years. So what is needed here is a president who can essentially decide a policy course, unify their party around it, and then we're going to find legislation. Because the real impact for all of us is that if Congress can't legislate and the president can't facilitate that from happening, then there will be policy stasis. And there are some really big issues the country has to address. So at the end of the day, if this doesn't work and you can't get people to kind of play ball or at least hold their tongue, then it's going to be really difficult to be able to pass things that are really needed. We'll be back next week with more party politics. If you like this political chatter, make sure to check out our Texas-centric episodes too. They're available every Friday afternoon, just like these episodes. As always, thanks to Houston Public Media, our producer, Edel Howland, and thanks to our special guest engineer extraordinaire, Little Miss Sunshine, Shannon Harrison. Subscribe to us on iTunes from wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. It'll help other people find the show. Follow us on Twitter with the hashtag PartyPoliticsPod and email us at PartyPoliticsPod at HoustonPublicMedia.org. I'm Jay Iyer. And I'm Brandon Roddinghouse. We'll see you next week.